This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're here to talk about the greatest movies of all time in a very dense and esoteric way. Every episode from now on will be 17 hours long <laughs> per week. And we hope that you just set the time aside while you are cleaning or driving to work and uh, tuck in because we're going to be using all the dictionary words we know. <laughs> Calm has asked us to provide them with a sleepy time track and it's just us <laughs> doing an episode of our podcast. <laughs> and they made us dress like the sleepy time tea bears, which was weird. <laughs> I was like, wow, you have no association with that. And yet here we are with a fucking nightcap with a little dangling tassel <laughs> and we did it we did it folks oh my god um what's going on with you in life really what's up i mean i assure you that i'm not taking acid based on my last statements um <laughs> uh -oh, it's one of, we it's one another one of these microdose shows that we did oh Oh, oh shit! Imagine if we did a fucking a microdose show that was 17 hours long. <laughs> like what a waste of time and drugs. <laughs> God, I hope I don't microdose and go for 17 hours. Can you imagine oh, doing a regular dose? I've never I'd even regular dosed. That's the thing. Like I've never regular dosed, so I don't know. I don't. I don't do drugs, so I don't even know what my reaction would be to any dose. But I guarantee it would be 17 hours of something. I have, I got to be honest with you. Like, I'm acting as if I'm like Timothy Leary. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I, I've only done LSD maybe like twice in my life. You're a child um, of the 90s. That's nothing. That's, yeah, it's truly nothing. Done mushrooms like uh, half dozen times or less or yeah. less. It's not even a half dozen. But this whole like concept of microdosing is like a new thing for me because when we were in high school, there was no microdosing. It was either no. that you took the full tab or the full thing or just a little bit. And I feel like microdosing has now become like an affect for people. Like they're like, well, I'm microdosing right now at work. And I'm like, so what does that mean? Did you mm -hmm. just like take one little baby hit of a, like, did you take a mini toke? Like, what is this? It just makes it seem like it's, more it just seems very like to there's like a to do about it where i'm like i don't understand why we're saying microdosing is that like yeah. the pageantry is that where we're just we just want a little pageantry it's a little pageantry well i was i've been against and kind of angry about microdosing from the first time i heard it particularly because there's a book written by um a very famous person and um 
she's talking about how microdosing like helps her with being a mom and blah 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 and, and i'm like give me a black person who can actively say i took a little bit of drugs and it's fucking <laughs> fine like i cannot handle the fact that now that you know marijuana is legal and things are kind of like drugs are becoming a more relaxed they're having a more relaxed viewpoint i think culturally yes. and it's only after we locked up all the fucking brown people for doing it right like the minute i hear a, a black person saying i microdosed i might be on board but right now it's just like <laughs> white people getting away with shit again all they do is the marketing they just do they change the marketing and now ah. it's a thing but i just assume it's people who just take a little bit of drugs just once in a while and that's fine yeah. too it's not a thing to and you know I, th I thought it was specifically tied to like lsd and shrooms yeah i think like so. they're taking a little bit of like psychotropic drugs which again i'm like give me a brown person in america who can like be like yeah i took a little bit of drugs and went to work today like what if i was self-employed and i was microdosing i would be i would be firing myself you can't be brown in this country and do a little bit of drugs. Yeah. Yo, speaking of marketing, I want to I wanna talk to you about something. Please do. Um, have you been to the movies lately? I haven't been in the movies in two and a half years. <laughs> well, then what the fuck? Should we even be talking about this? Because here's the thing. I, I was, I've, been, I've been going to the movies a lot. I mean, not as if like they don't play previews to stuff anywhere like you can go on youtube and see movie previews and they play them on tv and yeah. you know whatever but i because i've been going to the movies a little bit i've been sitting in front of like 35 minutes of movie trailers pretty frequently i, miss it. I gotta say i miss it well i don't know I, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's because i'm just fucking grouchy where i'm like every fucking movie trailer i'm like yo what is this okay here's here's my biggest beef okay Right now, it feels like every movie, regardless of the genre, regardless of the genre, feels like an episode of The Office with, like, swords. <laughs> an episode of The Office with, like, <laughs> some train ride through Europe or whatever. And I'm like, why? Why are the trailers like this now? I don't understand what the fuck is going on. Is it like they're they're breaking the fourth wall and talking to you directly? Is it like Deadpool style? Like it just feels like that type of humor. It's that yeah. humor of like, you know, I saw the movie for a Marvel, a Marvel title. I won't tell you which one it was. But I did see three. There was fucking three comic book adjacent movie trailers in this 35 minute chunk Damn. <laughs> before Elvis when I went and saw Elvis I'm not going to tell you which one it was I won't actually I won't even tell you if it was DC or Marvel it could have been either one of those Guess what? I, I, I already know just based on the timing I already know what movies they were don't worry about it that's my nerd my nerd superpower okay okay so you know but these people won't know maybe they won't know <laughs> trying to get sued i i am not trying to get sued so it was a it was one of these trailers marvel or dc or something where the fucking characters were like in another dimension in another state like they were like wearing pelts and 
fucking carrying giant weapons, like medieval weapons. But then they had the humor style of like dudes from the office, like right. an Ed Helms or like a fucking, what's his name? Krasinski. And yeah. I was like, why is that the default to literally every movie right now that's made for people our age where it's just sort of like everyone's awkward making jokes, even in medieval times, like medieval people are also awkward. Medieval people didn't have time to be awkward. They're like, we have time to fucking find food or get eaten to death by a wolf. Like we don't have time to be awkward about anything. We're sleeping on rocks. Like, what the fuck? It's the kind of thing where, like, a fucking asteroid will explode. Like, an asteroid exactly. explodes, and then there's, like, fucking two characters who are like, uh, did you just hear that? Uh, <laughs> I think it was an asteroid exploding in the fifth dimension of which, of which this story takes place. I'm like, no. There have to be rules to this <sighs> shit. You can't be, like, a fucking, uh, guy in a fucking science fiction film or something. Like, an asteroid space fucking superhero movie i don't know am i wrong about I, this I will, I will say this i know that you are not a fan of like the comic book to movie genre as a whole okay and that you have not seen most of these these films but i will say that the it is intentional it is a style now and that marvel movies especially employ it in every fucking movie Every single movie is like, let's go get these guys like buildings exploding. Hulk's like, like they make Hulk do spit take kind of jokes. Like it's that kind of shit. Like the Hulk is like, go, 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 ghost. And you're like, what? (laughs) It is absolutely a Marvel style and a comic book style now. It is that entertaining for you. Far be from me to say that that's not funny. Like I don't want to. I don't want to be this person to be like. Well, that's not funny. That's not comedy. It is. Fu- it was. I should say was. It was funny to me. But I can see how the premise is worn thin. But and I totally get it. But be- because it's like that. I think what happened is. And again, my fellow nerds, do not come at me. This is an opinion. Oh, they're gonna come at me. They're not coming at you at all. You're for That's them. not how nerds work. They don't go after the people who are like cool and smart and like fuck this shit. They come after their own. Oh, <laughs> ooh la la! I did not. We know come that. after our own, and we're like, "You're wrong," and I can argue this point with you, so I will. Um, <laughs> I think what has happened is that Marvel movies, comic book movies, comic books were lame for so long. Okay. And then Iron Man, the movie, happened, and comic books were cool for a subsect of our culture that had never fucked with comic books. Suddenly, they were cool. And so I think that there's like this, now that comic book movies are cool, I think there's this style that has developed to kind of like, like wink at itself, but that's how it comes out. It's like, yeah, haha, we know that we're just like, we know that we're showing you six foot four, 250 pound muscle men on screen beating the shit out of things. But isn't it funny, guys? Like, they kind of still have to bring in the smart people who like the comic books and who like, who are not there just for the, the film. And I think, I think that's what's happening is they're trying to bridge the gap between two worlds. One is, the fucking 
beer keg chugging Punisher sticker on the back of his truck guy. Ugh. And me. <laughs> it was like, I um have issue 45 of that one. And if you remember correctly, uh, this character does not say the word gadzooks they say gadzookies like that's what they're kind of trying to do is like bridge the gap okay and real talk real question do you want to be in this with these punisher guys these fucking like weird like uh new jock adjacent all lives matter types fuck no fuck no and this is this is where I get canceled. This is where I get into arguments with other nerds because so many people are like, but isn't it just great to bring more people to the fold? And I'm like, no, we police borders for a fucking reason. And this is how you get people saying, I'm a soap nerd. And you're like, nerd meant something to somebody. <laughs> you can't be a soap nerd. You just like soap. Like you're a Punisher dude. You're like the Punisher sticker dude. You can't call yourself a nerd because you have a Punisher sticker on your fucking truck and you saw a movie. Like there are people who have built their whole academic and intellectual lives around understanding the history of Marvel or DC or more interestingly, how Marvel and DC for decades and over the decades were in an intense war with each other. Like I put time into that shit. Well, look, I mean, I'm going to say this right now. You can't get canceled because you're Gen X. And this is what Gen X people do. They were, they, ah, they draw a line in the fucking sand when it comes to this shit. Because I'm sorry, I'll tell you one of the biggest, the biggest disappointments in my life was when I was, when I finally got to high school. I had spent my entire childhood watching John Hughes movies, watching, you know, Heathers, watching shit like this, where I was like, oh, there's a clear distinction between jocks and nerds. And when I say nerds, it wasn't like actual, like it ranged from comic book nerds to skaters, to people that huffed glue, to goths, to like anybody that wasn't fucking rich and beautiful, basically, yep. and, pl and played sports, right? And so it was actual like, like outcasts, like people who had no friends, who yes. had no, in like you saw them skulking through the hallways and yeah. they never, they went through all of high school without speaking a word to anyone, like those kinds of people. Yes, it's like, th those are like, I was like, oh, this, you know, John Hughes movie informed me that even if like people bully me, like I will be with my people. So, and they, and they can't possibly like bully us all type of thing. And we'll protect each other because we're all punk rock and cool. When I got to high school, that shit was fucking so, like that was like when jocks got into Nirvana. I mm. remember strictly like when Green Day were only for skater dudes. Like I remember when, yes. when Green Day came out, when they came right before they came out with Dookie, I was like, literally the only people that listened to Green Day were just like gross skater guys that, you know, fucking like drank 40s behind the gas station. They were like not cool and popular. But then like all of a sudden it's like all these popular kids started showing up at the Green Day shows and the fucking like wearing the Nirvana t-shirts. And I was like, what? I, this is a betrayal. Like this is, this cannot stand. But then, mm -hmm. as it turns out, it has stood since, every day since. 
It has flown. It has stood. <laughs> it has run. And then it fucking took off into the stratosphere. Yes. And that's how I feel. I feel like it's it's the reason that that wasn't cool when the jocks started coming to the Nirvana shows, so to speak, or the Green Day shows or whatever, or start listening to that music is because they didn't join the existing community. They changed it. Like they fuck. Remember Woodstock? Woodstock 99. <laughs> oh, God. Don't even get me started on Woodstock 99. Don't even get me started. But it's that kind of shit where it's like, these are a bunch of people now coming to shows for bands that I genuinely love, for things that I genuinely support, just to get drunk and throw punches. So they weren't joining anything. They were demolishing something. And look, let's push it to its furthest point, because that's what we we can do here. It's our show for now until we get booted. <laughs> And they're like, you got to hire some hosts who are not constantly making white people feel bad. <laughs> and they hate all the other generations except their own. We got to get some new blood in here. But yeah. I'm just going to say it. Jocks killed Kurt Cobain. <laughs> he saw I mean, what was happening. I mean, listen, they got blood on their hands, bare men's. Blood on their hands, bare men. Let's let, Okay, I retract. I will retract because I do not want to get sued by anyone. <laughs> and I agree with, with Millie. Jocks have got blood on their fucking hands. Because Kurt Cobain looked at what you were doing to his heartfelt expression and looked out on a sea of people and saw the fucking captain of the football team moshing in a mosh pit and he couldn't take it anymore. He had to shake off, (laughs) shake loose this mortal coil. Write an essay about it. I don't give a fuck. I'm saying it. I was like, this guy is wearing... Too much Under Armour gear for my liking. <laughs> I must bid you adieu, world. Like I just can't fucking like. And but I think what I think what I'm to the point of, and maybe part of what I want to ask you about is, I'm that petty ass bitch that's like, well, they like him now, so be free of me. I did my time, yep. and now it's become something else. So I ain't fucking with it. I just don't have that loyalty, and I and I'll yes. admit that it feels like sometimes you're an early adopter, and good for you. But then the thing that you loved takes on this new life and becomes this other thing, and now you gotta go because it's not for you anymore. And I'm that person, and I, I know people will be like, "But what's wrong with you? You just don't hang in there. Like you're an original. Like don't. No, 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 no." I know when to I know when to leave the party is what I'm doing. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And when I yeah. fold them is when everything becomes basic common denominator, basic bitch bullshit. But I think it's what you're what we're seeing now is twofold, which is that these comic book movies have overtaken the industry in a way that is very strange and disconcerting because they are such big earners that it's not like you're seeing a trailer for like a fucking Merchant Ivory film or for a fucking indie film or anything like that. You're seeing trailers for like the movies that will make money. And then there's also the thing of, like you said, that kind of let's make even the minions act like they're in an an episode of The Office (laughs) because they're trying to make this common denominator approach that everyone can fucking latch on to so they get their money the minions who don't even speak english who are somehow still communicating office style jokes yeah the minions have no language and they're doing like fucking one two setups 
in the style of The Office. Because they know that people will hear that fucking cadence and be like, oh, shit, that's my shit. Did somebody pretend to not know what's going on? Or did somebody go, uh, I guess that means I got to do this thing. Whatever that cadence is, is like the minions took it. They're like, well, now we have our movie. Before this, it was a fucking unwatchable piece of shit. <laughs> but now we got the cadence down. We know we'll get five million people watching for that alone. And that's why all of these movie trailers look and sound the same to you because they fucking are. Because everyone is trying to hop on a something that is dead and gone and already passed and was basic to begin with. Do not, again, I we've been through this before, Office fans, do not at me. Oof, please it is don't. a basic show and I don't care if you agree or not. That is where we are culturally is everyone's common denominatoring everything. That's not even a word, denominatoring. We make up words all the time here. I said somebody was Kate Winsleting him the other <laughs> week. That can't be a word. I'm drinking a Diet Coke after 9 p.m. and I feel fucking insane. Yeah. Oh, this was filled with sweet tea from Georgia. So I'm jacked. But it's true. I, I, to me, there is something we are we are approaching an era of the deadening of all pop culture. Yeah. It's just one. It's just one easy to make joke that applies to everybody of all of all genres and all uh ways of life but i but okay as a real head though as a real marvel head don't you do you feel like that's it for me i'm, I'm i can't do it anymore i mean i would be like that maybe but i feel like you still watch the marvel movies right you still go out there and see them when they come out i i had a couple years ago like i was still in it Mm. Um, I have I have no plans to see any movies re in the in you know coming up, and there's yeah. a big one coming up that from a franchise that I actually really like, um, and I'm not going to see it because I feel like like well because here's here's the other thing, and and again forgive, Star Wars is doing this thing where they are layering, and Marvel is doing it as well, where they are layering tv shows with movies so if you don't watch the tv shows when the next movie comes out there are going to be things that you do not understand categorically mm. i do not have that kind of time anymore like i cannot invest I, I could watch a marvel movie every two years and be fine i do not have the time to invest in a marvel movie and 17 fucking tv series in between just to see the next movie and get it yeah so that's where I'm kind of like, should I be tapping out? Because there are things now that do not make sense to me yeah. because I'm not invested in the whole company and everything they do and every crossover and every this. Like, I just I don't have that time. And Star Wars is doing that to a bonkers degree to the point where two of the hottest men on my roster. All right. Top five hot dudes that I would ruin their lives. Mm. Pedro Pascal and Diego Luna yes. are in Star Wars franchises, and I have not and will not see any of them. It feels okay. I will say this uh, this is completely from an outsider's perspective. It feels a little much <laughs> like the, yeah. the, the whole, like, the, the, the universes of both these giant corporations. Let's just say that. It feels a little much. Like, there's a, like, I kind of want to sit whoever down whoever decides these things and you don't have to tell me don't pop into my fucking dms to tell me 
don't I don't care about the vertical integration of Disney or anything. It's I, shockingly John Favreau <laughs> from Swingers. He has laid a lot of this track. Well, I would like to sit down, Mr. Money, and say, look, leave him wanting a little bit. Like, you don't yes. have to have like two or three fucking things happening at once. Right. It's become like a 90 day fiance fucking grift almost where you're like, yo, leave them wanting something. If they came out every two years, think about that. Like that would feel fucking intensely satisfying mm-hmm. to be like, oh, my God, I had to wait two years for a Marvel movie. But now it's like they were putting them out at the same goddamn time with the TV show, with this cartoon, with this stuff. And I'm kind of like, listen, like, did you not watch in the mood for love by Wong Kar Wai. You gotta, you gotta have a little fucking restraints, teasing people. You gotta have a fuck movie where nobody fucks. Exactly, exactly. Nobody fucks. And you know, I'm just trying to think of like something that I look. And this is not me trying to be hoity-toity fucking film nerd. I'm saying that like the Stars Born movies, right? They come right. out every like fucking twenty years, and I'm like, great. <laughs> Every 20 years, you get, like, a new person to to play the characters, whoever's hot, whoever's fucking got the chops at the time. And it's great. Every 20 fucking years. Like, a beautiful fucking comet or something that you watch with your children. And then you watch it as a child. It's just, like, that's good. And you know what happens? What happens in between that 20 years is you give people time to cultivate their nerdy obsession about the version that just came out. Yeah. Nobody has time to be a fucking nerd anymore because they're too busy catching up to everything that's currently happening. You can't dig into anything. There's no time. There's no time to be a nerd. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just, I, every, I know I have to come w- to the fucking pod and ask you about these Marvel questions because I'm like, seriously, it racks my brain. And look, I'm not trying to, like I said, I'm not, every time I talk about my like sort of, apathy or something towards comic book movies or science fiction or something like that. It's not, I don't actively hate it. I'm just saying that like, it just doesn't really make me curious to see it. But then I'm like, what, but when I do have the question, I have to ask you because I'm like, you're the girl that I can count on to give me the straight answer. Yeah. And if you get canceled, I'll back you up. I'll back you up. I'm going to tie it into Kurt Cobain's suicide. I'm just going to do it. You, you're you going to come to me and I'm just going to do it. And you know this and you accept it. And I love it. I also think, and this is, again, not this is an opinion, um, but I do. I think that, that, that they are not giving us time to cultivate um, how much we can like something or someone. And... I am going I, I'm going to be a little bit contradictory here though because I think that I I do have Marvel movies that I love and that I've enjoyed but part of the reason I enjoy them is because they are showing things in the movies that are like easter eggs from the comic books or you know things like that where you're like oh my god they have like a Modoc figurine on the on this desk that's really funny if you know what Modoc is or you know what that comic is it's things like there's not there's not enough room for Easter eggs. There's not enough room for like, I don't know. It just seems cloying and weird now. And I just want people to give me time to be a nerd yes. and to like the things I'm going to like. And I will say this 
two things that are going to dismantle the entire last insane 30 minute rant <laughs> I've been on this diet coke fueled ups, up insanity. One, I think Thor Ragnarok is a genuinely funny movie. Okay. It is a genuinely funny movie because Chris Hemsworth is a genuinely funny actor. Like, I know okay. he looks like, you know, he's got, like, Aussie God thing going on. Yes. But he is truly an oaf and, like, a very, very... And he's in on the joke enough to know that, like, he... And he's got... He just has a great delivery. And I think that, you know, and Taika Watiti wrote it. And it just is a good movie. It's a it's a very funny movie. Um, I also will say that if given the chance, I would write a Marvel movie in a fucking heartbeat. You would. I would. Okay. I I personally think I'm going to pitch you some ideas for this. Make it very dry. Yep. Make it very like Igmar Bergman-esque if you want. Like fucking mm -hmm. black and white. Make a black and white Marvel movie. Holy shit. And then have it be set in fucking, you know, pastoral Sweden or maybe mm -hmm. like over near the water. And have somebody say one word every five to seven minutes the rest is silence no soundtrack I, when marvel is ready to call it quits all they need to do is hire us to write that film and i will do it no action no one's dying no one's fighting it's going to be the most introspective marvel film of all time and it will truly tank the company i was gonna say uh deadline puts out an article that says the the new Marvel movie that was written by these two weird podcasters, Danielle Henderson and Milena Cherico, made seven dollars <laughs> total. Total gross worldwide gross seven dollars. And those two people who bought tickets for that want their money back. <laughs> and they had to see it at six a.m. because they didn't want to pay full price. <laughs> I can't. Oh goodness! Yeah, it is. It's weird, and, and it's it's true though. I think that it's it's definitely about the the way that superhero films have now bitten now a large chunk of the movie audience. Yeah, and also the combination of like movie superhero movies have a huge presence in movie going, and our cultural baseline right now is. Just give me the moves. You don't have to make yeah. it funny. Like, just give me the give me the minions version. Give me the the beats, and the cadence, and I'm there. Yeah, give me the comfort, the comfort juice. Well, listen, thank you for so much for indulging this me with this conversation. Because honestly, like, I was I just was literally like I'm just the grouchiest movie going middle aged woman. Like I'm just sitting here being like this crone. This crone has no joy in her life. She hates The Office. She hates anything that sounds like The Office, even the superhero movies, and she should be put put down. Let's take her out of the back and shoot her. That's a lot of thoughts for the 30 minutes before a film starts. And um, you should just be nicer to yourself. Just walk out. Just leave her in the trailers. You don't need to see those shits. I know. Usually that's my big, like, I, I, I used to not go to trailers and now I love them. But I now I hate them because they're not good for me right now. <laughs> I was like, oh, before ah! I used to love trailers. I used to love seeing what was coming out. I will say the only trailer that looked fucking awesome is the new David Bowie documentary. I was like, I'll see Ooh. that shit. Thanks oh, for breaking yeah. up the office. 
The David Bowie documentary did not have office-esque humor in it. Thank you. I very much I appreciate that. I'm actually very glad to hear that because I would not put it past anyone in this day and age to CGI the bones of David Bowie into a fucking gag where he's looking at the camera and like raising his eyebrows like I wouldn't put it past anybody I don't ever want to know that David Bowie watched television I don't want to know that he watched (laughs) any TV show that I might not like because I swear I want him to just I want him him to have been floating above us the entire time with like the most impeccable taste that has nothing to do with pop culture or anything I just want him to be his beautiful alien self Listen, David Bowie never watched American TV. This, this, this is the guidelines that I'm now placing. <laughs> he never watched American TV. He never took a shit. He was pure. <laughs> and that's just, he, he never took a shit. And if he never took a shit, he didn't sit on the fucking can watching some bullshit on his phone. I don't even think he had a smartphone. I don't even think, I think he still used Betamax. I think he was right on the verge of like, like a 90 year old New York City hoarder and an alien. Yes. Where you can't tell the difference. You're like, all right, this guy either never shits or he shits nonstop. (laughs) He either never engages with pop culture or he's got 900 hours of Betamax tapes. Yes. I mean, there's like two people in this, two people in this world that I don't want to know anything about their taste, their interests. It's David Bowie and Nick Cave. Do not tell me that Nick Cave does anything uncool. Like, I just, I don't want to hear it. Please don't tell me that he like plays team trivia or something. (laughs) Were we together when I saw him in um, Los Los Feliz? No. Los Feliz? What? I don't know who I was with. I forget. It was someone who didn't even know who he was. So that was a heartbreak. Um, But he was with his son shopping in Los Feliz. And I saw them going towards the parking lot. And I was parked in the same lot. And I veered hard into Skylight Books. Because I was like, I do not want to know what Nick Cave drives or if he drives. If he's not getting into a fucking... (laughs) If Nick Cave is not getting into a chauffeured hearse... I don't want to see him in anything else. Like, I don't want to see Nick Cave get into a Ford F-150. Oh my God, don't even suggest it. Right? So I just went to the bookstore. I'm like, I can't know what's going to happen next because I've seen him walking down the street and he looks very cool and dad-like. And that's all I need. He doesn't shit and he doesn't drive a Ford F-150. Oh my God. don't, Don't invoke. Don't invoke anything at this point. Let's just, let's keep these guys... And their and their coolness to themselves, and I don't want to know any more information. Can you imagine if he got into one of those cars, like those smart cars that looks like a little tykes, like the red and yellow? <laughs> yeah, what are they called? Now I'm forgetting literally everything I've ever I've ever known. Um, like the Richard Scary mobiles with the worm and the apple with wheels. Oh yeah, that's like a two person little pop tart car. Yeah. Oh my god. <sighs> no, we'll have to. Well, we we need to not think about this at all what we can think about is our movies we can think about our films okay i gotta tell you i finally did something i did something 
What'd you do? I came up with a theme for once. You did. I did. And I was like very proud of myself. Uh, You were probably like rolling your eyes and being like, I don't know what she's thinking. I come up with the best themes. Not even close. I I love this theme. You kidding me? Well, it's honestly because I really wanted to talk about my movie and I'm like, I'm shoehorning this shit and I'm like, okay, listen, we're doing this theme. You're like, fine. And thank God you did. Yeah. Well, I, you picked a good one too. So, um, you want to talk about what the theme is this week? I'll tell them what the theme is and then I want you to talk about the theme. Oh, because our theme that Millie came up with and I love is have fun, stay single. Yes. So I'll give you a little bit of background of why this is named this. So there's a movie called Singles that came out in the 90s. It's a Cameron Crowe movie. And there's a part of the movie where the Campbell Scott character's dad tells him to have fun, stay single. And I guess it's just kind of something that reverberates through the film. And that has always stuck with me since the 90s, because, of course, I can't let the 90s go. And I only make references from that period, obviously. But it kind of is just this thing of like, okay, well, what does this mean? Like, let's unpack it. Have fun, stay single. Meaning like relationships and marriages are the uh, bane of existence and everybody should stay single in order to have fun. Now, we know that that's not exactly true and it's very much complicated. But I feel like for the theme this week, it was that kind of thing where it's like, Let's talk about movies where either the character, the lead character should stay single (laughs) for the best reasons or is single and is showing uh, a side to singleness that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think your movie is so fantastic for the former reason and i i I picked my movie for the latter reason and i think that it's it's interesting that in a society that claims to be so progressive we still have the same tired ass ideas about anyone who's not married yes oh my gosh and that's something as women that that is just like a topic that is endlessly discussed and thought about and i mean i I quite honestly could do an entire podcast about singleness i could really do one I'm almost, I almost advocate for it in this very big way where I feel like people should experience being single for an extended period of time. And when I say single, I mean, you're not actively dating. Yes. So you're not sleeping with people. You're not on Tinder. You're not on any of those apps. You're not kind of in a weird situation with your roommate. You are truly alone. And I feel like people who can get to that point and feel okay with it will have a transcendent moment. This is my opinion. I completely agree. And I think that when, when you are comfortable being alone, you become unfuckwithable in certain ways because you now, you, you can now set a baseline boundary for yourself about how you will be treated by anyone, romantic or not. And I think that is what is important about spending time on your own. It's not to say that being in a relationship is bad or we're condemning relationships or anything like that. And that is the other thing I can't stand about how the way people usually talk about singleness, they talk about it like it's not a choice and they talk about it as if it's some way a negative response to relationships. And it's not. Yeah. I got to tell you, I was on a friend, one of my dear friends in the world, 
Heather Jewett. She listens to the pod. She herself has her own Patreon podcast called Bimbo Summit. Genius name. Um, <laughs> and she talks a lot about this. She talks a lot about being single. She's currently not single, but like she talks about the times where she was and when and, and in that same way that I just spoke about where she was not dating, she was not going out there having crushes. She was just literally working on herself and pursuing mm-hmm. her own path and her own interests. And she was like, it is the greatest. It was the greatest moment of my life. It really changed everything for me. Like you learn how to like soothe yourself emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, like you are really on your own. And I don't know. There's something about that where if you can just strip away like all of that kind of stuff and just kind of be in the pure moment of singleness, like it's it's kind of magical and it it really does change you. Yeah, you know? it's motivating, it's inspirational. There's there in the time that we have on the limited time that we have on this earth, why not spend some time getting to know yourself? And there's something just inherently sad to me when someone will say something to me like well, I haven't been single since I was 14. And now they're in their like mid to late 40s. And I'm like, wow. So for most of your life, you have not ever spent time with yourself. Yeah. That is wild to me. Yeah. I think because a lot of people think that being single is is not an option. Like they feel like the only reason why people would be single is because no one wants to be in a relationship with them mm-hmm. or something. And I'm like, no, that's not true. Like anybody can find partnership, whatever that looks like. Yeah. But sometimes people decide to actually not do it and that's fine. It's not because it's a lack of is what I guess what yes. I mean. Yes. And that is that is the narrative that needs to change. It's not a lack of. Yeah. It's it's a it's a an attention to yeah. And I feel like in my movie, like in particular, I might have to spoil it just because, well, A, it's old. It was from the 40s. I feel like I could spoil it at this point. But also it <laughs> is that like, you know, it, it ultimately proves my point, I think, right. at the end of the day. But also for your movie, I, it, it does get a little complicated for her in that way. Like she does maybe find somebody that she likes. But I feel like she just has such a healthy attitude about being who she is at all times that yeah. it almost was like, well, it doesn't even really matter. Even if she never met anyone, she would still be happy. Yep. Absol- which is great. Absolutely. Oh, I cannot wait to get into these. Well, you're first. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I've been wanting to talk about this movie forever and we're finally doing it. So my movie for the theme, Have Fun, Stay Single, is a movie from 1949. It was written by Ruth and Augustus Getz from their play of the same name that was based off a novel by Henry James. It was directed by William Wyler and it's called The Heiress. He must take me away. He must love me. Catherine, you must take hold of yourself. No, no, Morris must take hold of me. Morris will love me for all those who didn't. I think I mentioned William Wyler, the director of this film before, mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was pontificating on Memphis Bell <laughs> from the Is It Good or Was I Horny episode from a million years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> he was the guy that I talked about that directed the documentary that the movie Memphis Bell was based off of, right? right? So if you want to hear more about William Wyler, just go to that episode because I talk about him. He directed like Best Years of Our Lives. Little Fox is like a lot of great old classic Hollywood stuff. 
But the heiress, oh my God, like, where do I even start? To say that this movie resonates with me would be an understatement. It is, quite frankly, like, I have this, like, low-key obsession with it. And anytime it comes on TV, I, like, I'm like a bot, like a Twitter bot for this movie coming on TV. I'm like, <laughs> by the way, the heiress is on. Everyone watch it. <laughs> so, um, a one-sentence synopsis of this film. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. A woman who has been constantly put down her entire life finally experiences true freedom when she stops hanging out with men. Could not be better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but I just, I love a one sentence zinger. So the lead character of the heiress is this woman named Catherine Sloper, and she's played by the classic film actress, Olivia de Havilland. Now, if you don't know Olivia de Havilland by name, she had a very long and fascinating career. In fact, she only died a few years ago and she died at the age of 104. Mm. So she lived a while. She was definitely on the Smuckers roster on the Today Show. <laughs> ah! So Danielle might have heard it while she was watching three hours of the Today Show. Um, she was in a lot of really famous films. I mean, she was in Gone with the Wind and she was in a lot of movies with Errol Flynn. I mean, they were like in maybe like eight or nine movies together and they had a lot of drama on and off screen. So if you ever feel like reading about that, she also has drama with her sister, Joan Fontaine. I feel like that should be something you guys could read about in this movie, the heiress. Okay. She is a, she plays this woman, Catherine, who is a single adult woman living in New York city in the 1850s. And she lives with her father, Dr. Austin Sloper, who is played by the famous British actor, Ralph Richardson, who you gotta go on a Wikipedia hole about him too. He's great. You, sh you should read about him. But so, okay. It's suggested that it, they make this very clear in the book, apparently, and in the play, but maybe not in the film. Catherine's mother apparently dies while giving birth to her. And this tragedy is kind of at the center of their entire family and has yeah. been ever since it happened, right? Now, Catherine's aunt, who is named Lavinia Penniman. Beautiful. She, beautiful name, beautiful 1850s name. She's played by Miriam Hawkins, who's awesome. Aunt Lavinia has recently been widowed and she ends up moving in with them at the beginning of the film. Now, Lavinia loves love, okay? Like, she's bummed out that her husband died, but ultimately she loves love, and she wants Catherine to get married, basically at any cost. Yeah. And throughout the entire film, she's, like, wanting to live, essentially, vicariously through Catherine. Definitely put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that later. But the first few bits of the film, Catherine's character is being established, and it is established that she's very shy, she's very awkward, and she kind of keeps this like uber plain look. And they demonstrate this by giving the naturally beautiful actress Olivia de Havilland wild, unplucked eyebrows. They give her some bags under her eyes and then they just give her like a severe butt cut. <laughs> They're like, voila, she's ugly. Here we go. 
a wild concept because it's like, I mean, how many times have we talked about this where they take like beautiful young people and they're like, let's make her ugly. Oh yeah, Princess Diaries, <laughs> done. Yes. It's always funny, the 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 makeup and the, the effects that they give somebody to make them look ugly. Like a butt cut, you got it. So the other thing too is that Catherine is very much into embroidery, which she does on like one of those big wooden stands. Yeah, big old loom. Oh, is it called a loom? Now, y'all are going to have to forget your modern notions about crafting because now it's very subversive in punk rock. But in 1850, if you were into embroidery, you were basically a spinster nerd with no life. (laughs) That's just the way it was. And it was because everything you made took like four years to complete. So if you start... (laughs) An embroidery project in the 1850s, you're basically saying to people, I don't plan on doing having any life for the next four years. I don't plan on going anywhere. I'm not traveling. I'm going to be here in this chair next to this fireplace doing exactly this for four years. Yeah. She has no mans and no dates. That's why she's doing embroidery. And her father says this. Her father basically alludes to this at the beginning of the film. He tells Lavinia, all right, get Catherine away from this wooden thing and just bring her to this engagement party for our niece because this is too sad. All right. Lavinia is like, she's, she is, she says everything with a smile and everything she says is wilder than the next thing. Like she starts out the movie being like, oh, I went to, I met two people from Poughkeepsie who were the most excited, it was the most exciting day. And I'm like, I assure you those words will never be uttered again for another 70 years. Like, this bitch took an hour bus ride to Poughkeepsie and was like, that was the highlight of her fucking year. (laughs) Will not be uttered again until the 19 fucking 80s? (laughs) Never again. And then she's like, she's always telling Catherine, too. Like, Catherine's like, I don't really like talking to people. Like, I'm kind of awkward and shy at it. And she's like, oh, well, I talk all the time and I've just got nothing to say. And I'm like, what? And then she'll, the the wildest one for me is when they're in the car on the way to the party or the carriage on the way to the party. Yeah. And they're talking about her, her, her um, husband who's just passed away and he was a pastor. And she's like, her, I guess her, her um, Dr. Sloper was like, you know, eh, yeah, you're just sad. And she's like, well, I guess I'm just grease stricken wherever I go. Might as well go to a party. And then she starts laughing and I'm like, okay, Lavinia is fucking on one. I need a whole <laughs> movie about her immediately. <laughs> exactly she's just like laughing through my grief in Lavinia's public. like fucking sucking down laudanum I don't know what the hell she's doing but she is like <laughs> I would not be surprised if she's like I went and panned for gold like she's just <laughs> on it and nothing will stop her from trying to turn Catherine into like the life of the party yeah yeah and it, it's just not happening okay and look, we gotta talk about Dr. Sloper now oh. like I said Dr. Sloper is played by Ralph Richardson Ralph Richardson is an incredible actor and he is pretty much the only person that's going to be able to accurately be the motherfucker that he is in this movie. Cause mm. what he is one of the worst dads in film history for my money, <laughs> for my money. Um, yes. because here's the, here's the vibe with him, right? So his wife died while giving birth to his daughter and he has openly resented Catherine ever since this has happened. He uses every moment to remind Catherine that she's basically just a fucking fraction of the beauty and grace and personality that her mom was. Oh, yeah. Like, he he basically walks into every room, looks at Catherine and just goes, ugh. 
Yeah. Like he just like he might as well just make that sound because he's just like he and he says the most cutting, horrible things to her. Yeah. Like, oh, she's like, I'm wearing a red, red dress. And he's like, your mother looked better in red. I'm like, bitch, <laughs> what in the fuck? I'm sorry. Like, is this your everyday life? Like you cut her down that much. And here's the he thing. Is. The only thing, literally the only thing he says that she's got going for her at all is that she is, quote, worth 30000 a year. Okay, which we find out means that Catherine gets 10 grand a year from her mother's death. Okay, and eventually when her father passes away, she will get 20,000 more. So, of course, in 1850, this meant that she'd be fucking loaded. Okay, but basically her dad is like, that's all your that's all you have in this world is you got 30 grand a year. And you got nothing else. You remember that scene from um, Teen Witch where he's like, you're a dog, Louise, a dog. A dog. <laughs> That's basically her dad in every scene. He's like, you are a fucking dud. And I cannot believe that this is what came out of the beauty that was your fucking mother. Yeah, exactly. And he's constantly, he's constantly comparing to her to a woman that she's actually never met. I mean, yeah. she died while giving birth to her. So it's kind of this thing where you're like, you do the math. Okay, anybody that's experiencing all this messaging would fucking be a disaster. Am I right? Yes. Yes. So, okay, cut to, they're trying to get her to go to this party. Catherine's brand is strong. We know that she doesn't want to go to this party at all. But she gets coaxed into going. And of course, it's awkward, right? Because she doesn't know how to dance or how to hold a fucking fan, which again... In 1850, it's like, you don't know how to hold a fan. I guess that means that you're feral and you get to go live on a moor like a ghost from a fucking Kate Bush song. I don't know. I'm like, so what? But again, this is 1850 rules. I don't, I don't know. I don't know those rules. You can't hold a fan, so we have to drag you out to the fucking bogs. <laughs> you're going to live with the fucking bog monster. You're going to live in his mouth. And you only come out when a little kid has a a, a, a a siren's call out of a shell. I don't know. I'm like, God damn. All because she can't do a waltz? Come on. And, the, and, and also she's living in this way that like they're dragging her out in public constantly just to make her feel bad. Like she can't do anything right. And here's the thing. So she's at the party. She's hanging out with the adults, you know, and then, you know, one guy comes over, asks her to dance. He eventually pieces the fuck out on her, which she is like legit disappointed by. And then another guy walks up and this guy is named Morris Townsend. And he's played by the classic movie fuckboy royalty himself, Montgomery Clift. And not for nothing, Montgomery is just as handsome or maybe even more handsome than he was in A Place in the Sun. You got to mm -hmm. go listen to our episode about that to know what I'm talking about. Um, but here's the thing. M much like his role in A Place in the Sun, he comes in real hot yet again. And Catherine is shooketh. Shooketh. Her I, know like they, I know they didn't exist back then, but he basically breezed in on a pair of wheelies. <laughs> he was like, zoop, what's up? I'm in your fucking life now. Yes. He's like, I just breezed in from Europe. Who are you? And she's like holding her poor little dance card and her like little tiny golf pencil. And she's like shaking when he's talking to her. 
you know? And she's like, he's like, I want to dance with you. She's like, uh, uh, like, oh my God. And here's the thing. So they dance. He shows her some kindness, teaches her a few fucking moves on the dance floor. And at the end of the evening, he's like, hey, I would like to take you out. Uh, and she's like, okay, yeah, right. Okay, see ya, right? Like, there's no way, right? Because he's so handsome and he's so cool and you know, no one ever asked her to dance, that kind of thing. He's hip, he's cool, he's 45. Yeah, he's hip, he's cool, he's 45 in 1850. <laughs> but then, so over the course of the next week, this guy cannot stop contacting her. He's coming over. He's sending her flowers. He's very persistent. And needless to say, Lavinia is loving every second of it because she's like, she's, again, she's widowed. In a way, her lot in life is already laid out, right? And she's basically like saying in so many words to Catherine, like, don't be like me. Don't be this like spinster, lonely lady for the rest of your life. Go out and find love, even if it's wrong, <laughs> even if it's wrong. So here's the thing. So in this moment of the movie is when I certainly, but maybe you as a viewer would go like, all right, what's going on with this guy? Morris Townsend. Okay. First of all, you're like, in one moment, you're like, well, hey, I'm not completely negative. Maybe he really does like her. And and maybe he's just not afraid to make it known, right? And he's seeing past a lot of these things that she doesn't see within herself, which is very sweet and endearing. However, there's the other side of the coin where it's like, okay, here's this guy that comes in real hot and is definitely refusing to read the situation for what it is, which is that even if you really like this woman, she's very skeptical. She's having a hard time dating, and maybe you got to be a little bit more sensitive to that instead of just steamrolling over her with your relentlessness, right? Yes. And like I said, he spends an entire week trying to get in the front door, and then he finally gets in the door. He has dinner with Catherine and Dr. Sloper. He's rapid fire fucking handing out compliments to both of them. And then this other thing that he reveals, which is that, you know, because Dr. Sloper, Dr. Sloper is shaking his ass down. He's like, so tell me all about yourself. I need to know everything. And he's like, well, I was in Europe for the past however many months or years. And, you know, I had a small inheritance, but I blew it all in Europe because I was backpacking like I like you do. And also, I don't have a damn job. I might need a job. And I live with my sister and... <laughs> And I am not giving her money at all. <laughs> yeah, I didn't give her a goddamn dime for my inheritance. And I kind of tutor her kids and I make her pay me. Yeah. So there's that info. And I don't have to say it, but Dr. Sloper is immediately like, okay, he is sus. And what does not help at all is that Morris pretty much asks Catherine to marry him immediately after dinner. Absolutely. On his way out the door. I He's mean, like, oh yeah, P.S., will you marry me? And she's like, I absolutely fucking will because you're the only person who's ever fucking asked. I mean, I know they move fast in 1850, but I was like, damn, that is too fast, right? And to make matters even worse, okay, Morris tells Catherine in that moment that he's like, let's get married. He says, listen, I'm poor. Let's get serious. Your dad is going to think that I want you for your money. And you got to tell him it ain't true. And if he says no, we got to get married anyway. Like he's already like doing the grift mm -hmm. where he's like, I came up with all possible solutions to all problems. So it's all set up. Right. 
Very weird. I mean, I want to believe in true love, but this is all so sketchy to me. And I'm just like, here's the thing. She tells her dad the next day. And as we say, all hell breaks loose. Look, Dr. Sloper is already mean as fuck. When he finds out this information, the cork is taken off of the bottle of asshole sauce. And he is just (laughs) spreading it everywhere, liberally. So I've actually had debates with film men about this okay because some people will believe that okay here's just a dad that just wants to protect his daughter from this gentleman grifter sometimes people don't get it and sometimes you gotta slap him over the head with the knowledge no for me i feel like the moment i really turn on the dad is when dr sloper calls in morris's sister right sister or aunt no, I can't. Sister. Sister. Calls yeah. in Morris's sister to be like, all right, so do you know what's going on with these two? And, you know, she comes over and is like, yeah, I mean, they're getting married. What's the big deal? And the father does this thing where he basically is like, well, come and take a look at my daughter and you're under, you will understand while I'm losing my shit right now. I'm just like, that is cold as hell. That is not someone with good intentions. And here's the other, th- I turned on him before that. But that really sealed the deal for me because he, one, is constantly putting her down, comparing her to her mother, telling her she's not enough. She's not good at anything. He's like, the only thing I've ever seen you do well is embroidery, which is like, fuck, that is a burn of a century for 1850. (laughs) He's like, all you can do is sit at home with this fucking hoop and a needle. And you're like, Jesus. So he's like fucking insulting his shit up to that point. Right. Then he's like, take a look at this fucking dud. And when, you know, the sister's over there. And then what really gets me about him is like, he's not making any suggestion to her about maybe this guy is someone you could marry or yep. maybe you stay single and you just have your inheritance and you teach or you become a nurse or you do something else. Like he is not interested in her happiness at all. Yes, yeah, he's making literally no other suggestions. I mean, we he wants her to get married because obviously he's calling her a big fucking nerd and he's like, stop being such a nerd with your needles and your loom. Like, so it's obviously he wants her to do something, but then he shits on her, an attempt to maybe get out of that. And it's it's ultimately sort of like, well, then what do you want from this woman, right? Like, what do you want from your own daughter? And what ends up happening is that like they end up having a big confrontation morris catherine and the dad the dad decides to take catherine to europe for a while so that maybe she'll forget about morris it's such a cursed trip they come back early and uh basically he tells her to her face like he says it finally to her face like you are ugly you are ungraceful and you have nothing to offer but your money and she's like flatlined at this point she's like i'm done. devastated like like fuck this okay so here's the deal uh, this is where i'm going to come in and i'm going to spoil it because i just i just have to talk about what happens but basically what what ends up happening is if you don't want to hear about this then skip okay so she's had this the ultimate fight with the dad morris is outside and he's like come down you were gone for however long in europe and i haven't seen you since then come down i have a plan we're going to elope so she comes down and basically she says yeah let's elope 
Um, and he has this whole plan of like, oh, like tomorrow we'll stay at this like, you know, <laughs> bed and breakfast and get a carriage and all this like shit. And she's like, fuck that. Why wait till tomorrow? Let's go tonight. And guess what? Let's not cut on my dad for anything. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I, I will, I, I hate his ass. I, I would love to be estranged from him at this point. And we'll just live together happy as a married couple. And we don't need him for anything. Like, let's go right now. I'm done. And in this moment, you can see Morris, and it's like the wind is just out of his sails. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, she wants to make a clean break with the father. And then all of a sudden, he pivots to this whole, like, well, well, come on, let's not be rash. Like, he's the only father you have, and let's not be too hasty to cut it off. And it's like, do you really think that? Or is it just that you are going, well, I guess we ain't getting that 20000 a year. Exactly. And we might not even get the 10 because she's like, I don't want anything from him ever at all. Yes. And so she's like, all right, let's go. See you in an hour or whatever. She runs upstairs, gets packed. She's so fucking excited. She's like, I'm starting the new life tonight. And she's waiting on him and waiting on him. And he never shows up. Mm. Mm. Classic movie fuck boy breaks my heart every time i see it and the rest of the movie plays out like this again spoilers abound he never shows she's heartbroken life all life has been altered cut to the future dr sloper dies and she gets her money okay morris in meanwhile fucked off to california we don't care but then he comes back in town one day and he finds out that she's still there in the house. And he's like, I got to see you. I got to see you. Blah, 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 blah. And Catherine is like, oh, hell no. Hell no with this guy. He comes to the house. She doesn't even want to let him in. Okay. But then finally he, he charms his ass back into the house. She lets him actually say his stupid apology for not showing up when they were supposed to get married. And then this guy asked her to marry him again. Mm. So he's like, oh, your dad's dead. You got the money. Let's go. Like, come on, game on. And this is the moment where Catherine is like, all right, like everything has been leading up to this moment. Here's this guy groveling at my feet. And she's like, all right, let's go then. Go get your things. I'll see you. I'll see what I see in a few hours. And then the minute he walks out, she's like, bolt the door, Maria. She's like, he ain't coming back in. And she she just leaves him knocking at the front door, like pounding the door, like, I love you. Let me in. And she's just like, I'm going upstairs. I'm doing some more embroidery. I'll, I'll literally do anything but entertain this motherfucker for another second. And it is the most supremely satisfying ending to this movie. Turn the tides. Fucking got him with his own game. Yes. Got him with his own game. And her speech at the end is so gangster. She's basically like, you know, he told all these lies. He came a first time. He came a second time. He won't be coming again. Like I was like, yes. And that 1850 swag. Bring it, Catherine. We love it. And that is part of what I think this movie is. This is why this movie is so memorable to me is because this in this era in 19 late 1940s even mm-hmm. 
it was very bold for a movie to end this way. Usually what would happen is what she would, he would somehow show how wonderful he was and that he made this epic mistake and they would end up together. But no, she fucking stays single. She stays on her own. She stays to her principles. And I think that's so fresh, so fresh for like classic Hollywood. And I love this movie for that. I love that it ended like that. I do too. And I love that in, she not only got, fucking um morris in the end she got her dad too she got back mm-hmm. at all these motherfuckers just by surviving just by having some longevity and being like uh i don't want to make a decision about this because you broke my heart and you fucking hate me even though you're my father so i'll wait for you to die snatch that money that you fucking don't want to give me you want to leave to some clinic and i'll wait for you to come back and grovel and guess what who wins i got everything she got everything yeah And you know what, like, there isn't a moment to me, I mean, this certainly could have had like a horrible feeling of like, well, now she's just going to be alone with her money. How sad is that? I'm like, no, she has her, she has her autonomy. Like she has, she played it the way she wanted to. And I know that in this 1850s era, you know, that was probably a fucked up move for sure. But she's like, I don't care. Like yep. I'd ra- I'd rather have my dignity than to be with a guy who is clearly using me. Yep. Or is at least completely unreliable bare mints. So who hmm. fucking goes to California instead of just saying, you know what? I actually can't marry you if you don't have any money. Cause I don't have any money and we need some money. <laughs> so can you just get a little bit of money and then we come back like nothing. Yeah. I mean, fuck look, that dude. I know. And th- thank you for saying that because they're, like I said, I've gotten into debates with people about this movie where they felt sorry for Morris or they felt sorry for Dr. Sloper. And I'm like, I don't see it that way. And I don't know why I don't see it that way. I just see it differently. And they got, I, they, you know, they got to stop sipping that fucking patriarchy juice is what's up. There's no reason to feel bad for Morris. Morris is cruising around the fucking country, grifting women. And that is his job. <laughs> he did not love her. He did not love her. There is no and, reason to feel bad for that fucking character. Well, and and here's why. It's because there's a moment in the film, like towards the end, where she invites him back in the house. He has this thing. It is literally like a two-second moment where she lets him back in the house. And she's like, okay, like, I forgive you. Like, I'll be back. And he looks around the house. Mm-hmm. And he's like, mm-hmm. I'm living here. Like I'll be here in 20 minutes living here in this beautiful place. And my, all my rubies, my rubies and diamonds all over my buttons or whatever the hell she got him from Europe. And I'm just like, that is the difference. The difference is that like, it ain't the thing where he's like, I'm just, you know, so messed up and I need you to forgive me. He's like, no, no, no. He has, there's a grift. Like, look at his face. He's he's looking around and he knows what he's, he's going to enter into if he, just keeps buttering up this poor woman. So I don't know. I don't feel sorry for Morris either. Um, I do love to think about the Montgomery Clift fuckboy trajectory yeah. of both this movie and A Place in the Sun. I don't know when he gets decent. I guess maybe in like From Here to Eternity. Did he play a fuckboy in that movie? I don't think so. I think it's pretty good in that movie. But anyway, anyway, such a great movie. Please watch it. It is 
to me. There's this really great like conversation on the Criterion disc for the heiress by Farron Smith Nemi and Jay Cox, who they talk about the heiress and they talk a lot about the play and the book, which is great because I know sort of less about those two, but they, they kind of like weave it all in together and it's so interesting. Definitely check it out. But that's my movie, Justice for Catherine Sloper. We love her. Justice for Catherine Sloper. Oh, such a great movie. Absolutely must be watched. My film takes a little bit of a different, a different approach. Oh my God. I have fun. Stay single. Dude, I haven't seen your movie since it came out and it is fucking so awesome. Like I forgot how awesome it was. Well, my pick for our theme of have fun, stay single was a film that was released in 2008. It was written and directed by Mike Lee, and it is Happy Go Lucky. Don't take life seriously, Poppy. You've got to be joking. just want you to be happy, that's all. I am happy. I love my life. I've got a great job, amazing friends. Yeah, it can be tough at times. That's part of it. So I'm going to give my one-sentence synopsis up top. A deeply happy London primary school teacher defies the natural order by enjoying her life without focusing on finding a partner. Yes. Now, Mike Lee is a very well-known and respected director. Um, He's famous for things like like Secrets and Lies, Vera Drake, and Naked, which brought David Thewlis into my life and many other people's lives. Um, Naked's a great, they're all great films, but Naked, if you haven't seen, is particularly great. Mm. Um, and the one thing I will say is that, so the main character is Poppy, played by Sally Hawkins, and she did win the Golden Globe for this, this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poppy lives in London, and you know she teaches young kids, and takes everything with a grain of salt, and just finds everything humorous, um, and also really spends a lot of time with her friends, like having fun and drinking, and she just has fun. She just has a fun life. And she lives with her friend Zoe, who's played by Alexis Sagerman, um, who's just such a great foil to Poppy as the movie Mm -hmm. goes on. And what I really love about the movie and the reason I picked it is because it's not because she's someone who stays single. It's because she's someone who doesn't, it's not the focus of her life to not be single. And she still has a very good life. Just like a hilarious scene in the beginning where she's you know having a night out with her friends and they come back to the apartment and they're just like goofing off and then she wakes up the next morning and does not have a hangover like she's one of those kinds of people (laughs) (laughs) like everyone else is wrecked and she's like what's up time to get up but what i really like about and i wanted to mention this up top as well because i think that there there's a trope called the manic pixie dream girl which i'm sure most of you have heard about and it would be really easy to try to ascribe that trope to this character, but that ca- that type of character, um, you know, Nathan Rabin, who created that that whole phrase, it, it's meant to be someone who exists kind of solely to teach men uh, about the mysteries of life or like how to be adventurous yes. or something. And that is not her. That is not her raison d'etre. Like she's not trying to teach men anything at all yeah it, it you're so right because that to me i feel like it gets so overused now where it's mm-hmm. like oh just a, a quirky female character like any character that's not being a complete bitch is a manic pixie dream girl or something where i'm just like no that that term felt like it was created 
to describe sort of like this like male fantasy yes person versus just a like a character that is not motivated like it's the her character the sally hawkins character in this movie does not exist for the pleasures of men in any way no and she she's her own character but she's the center of the film so it's kind of like if there are men that come across her that come across her it's just incidental it's not the whole reason for the film type of thing right completely completely and like and that was the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing was was created to describe Kirsten Dunst in Elizabethtown. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's like about women who have no motivations of their own. And she, from the beginning of the film, is very ambitious, where she's making these like paper brown bag um, bird masks that she and Zoe are making. And at first, what I like about this movie is at first you don't know what's going on with her. Like you're like, yeah. what is her story? Is she an artist? Is she like, what is going on? Why is she so happy and kind of out there and artistic and is she microdosing we don't know is she microdosing we don't know (laughs) and it turns out that she's a primary school teacher and she so they make these bird masks as a as a an attempt to you know just do like a mock-up before they do it for the class and the kids are like so into it and it turns out she has like the perfect temperament for what she does so she's not only a woman who is living life for herself, but she has found the perfect job for herself. Like she is really focused on everything in her life feels intentional to me. She, at the beginning of the film, loses her bike. She she kind of goes to a bookstore and props her bike up outside on a fence and it gets stolen. And she tells Zoe like, all right, I'm going to learn how to drive finally. Um, and Zoe's like, you're not using my car. So she signs up for this service where she can you know, be a student driver and be taught how to drive. And again, in the meantime, she's like, she's taking trampoline classes. She's talking to other teachers. And this one teacher tells her she's taking flamenco classes. So she's like, yeah, I'll do that too. I love that. Oh my God. I love her so much. And she kind of like, these are, these are scenes that I think are important because she, she talks to, she really communicates with Zoe, but she talks to other adults in a way that just validates and gratifies what they're saying. So if if an adult says like, oh, yeah, like my feet hurt, I'm taking this flamenco class, her response would be something like, oh, yeah, must be the worst. Like, it's just not very noncommittal. And so there is something very light and kind of childlike about that, that approach. But it's, it's interesting to watch a character who's pointedly trying not to engage too much. She's not trying to reveal too much or rock the boat too much because she's so intent on just keeping things and people happy and keeping her relationships happy and light. But I just also have to say that flamenco class again, could watch an entire film with just the the flamenco class teacher. It, I, that is one of my favorite parts of the movie. It made me want to take flamenco. (laughs) I made me want to take flamenco lessons. I was like, uh, do we have this in Atlanta? Because I would take the shit I out of this. I would take the shit out of it. Oh my yeah. god, me, you, and me both. It, it looked, just, it just looked like so much fun, and the teacher was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and making fun of like you know like the British people in the class. Like we we have. I'm from Seville, Seville or Sevilla, which which you guys pronounce as Seville. <laughs> like we, yeah. you take our beautiful oranges and you make disgusting marmalade. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, the, and the, the teacher is so great, uh, the actress that plays the teacher, but then, like, it is that thing where you're, like, watching her, you're watching Poppy 
taking these dance classes, t- jumping on the trampoline. She does that whole like the trampoline. I don't know if that's a lesson or if that's just like some kind of extracurricular, but you're like, that is like what I think is inspiring about watching like a, a, being a single person is that you just get to fucking pursue all these like weird interests that you want to yes. do. Like you're just like, Hey, I want to take flamenco. Hey, I want to jump on a trampoline. Hey, I want to do this. And I like, I love that part of her character that she's open to new experiences. Yes. Know? And that she's open to it. Exactly. It's very refreshing. Um, and she hurts her back doing trampoline class uh, and kind of, she has to go to a chiropractor and she just laughs through the whole appointment. Yeah. I don't know. There's just something also very much like like when you're only beholden to yourself, like you're allowed to kind of find joy in different weird places. Yeah. Um, I don't know. She's just a very refreshing character. And so she decides to take these driving lessons and she ends up taking driving lessons from this guy named Scott, his, uh, played by Eddie Marson. And he is such a good actor because, holy fuck, this dude was like incel prototype 101. Oh, I was just about to say. Oh, my God. He is so rigid when you first meet this character. Like, the juxtaposition of the two of them is interesting because he is, like, cross-armed, angry, scowling, and she's just like, hey, yeah, cool, I'll learn how to drive, whatever. He's instantly pissed off at her because she's wearing high-heeled boots, and he does not think that you can drive in high-heeled boots. And she's like, "Um, people have been driving in heels for years. I'll be fine. Um, But he really is kind of physically seems to be repelled by her because she's not as angry as he is. And he's also super fucking racist. And he's just, like, he's the kind of guy, like, when they're driving at one point, these two um, boys go by, these two black boys go by on bikes. And he says, lock your doors. Like, he's that kind of fucking guy. Dude, this, his character had a completely new meaning for me in, like, our modern era. Like, I know this movie didn't come out too far in the past. Like, it's, what, 2008? But I was like, he's the prototype for, like, that scary internet guy conspiracy theorist racist like incel anger management problems i'm like yikes like wow we have seen a lot of this guy now since this movie came out oh yeah like it is fucking terrifying and he's awful and he's just like a mansplaining asshole and i'll tell you that like He's a bad driving instructor. Like, he shouts at her and sc- he keeps screaming, Enraha. Like, he gives her this uh, mnemonic to remember where- how to look at her mirrors. And it's like, he's just terrifying. He is terrifying. And in the midst of all this, you have Poppy. And Poppy is like, you know, she goes out for, for drinks with her friend um, from school, Tash, who's played by Sarah Niles, who's a fantastic actress you will absolutely recognize. And she's like, I'm really happy single. And what I and what I like about it is that, you know, when she goes out with Tash, when she goes out with her other friends from school, they don't push her on it. They're just right. like, that's cool. That's great. It's not like, well, let me set you up or let me do this. Like, they believe her. And that's something else I don't see in narratives about single women, especially, is that they don't believe you could be happy single. So the fact that her friends are just like, that's great. Like, that's it seems like you're really enjoying your life. That's great. Um, yeah. I, I love that. I love that too. It's it's one of the few movies where you have single women who are girlfriends that aren't obsessing over dating 
You know, yes. like in every scene is them talking about like how they can't get boyfriends. I mean, they certainly do make comments about how men ain't shit, which, you know, is like a fu- they're funny moments. But it is that thing where you're like, not every conversation is about men. Like they're they're right. ex- they're coexisting together, especially like her and Zoe's relationship. Like I love that was like one of the best friendships that I've seen in a long time. Just Completely. the two of them together and they're as roommates and they, you know, they just have kind of a very like effervescent but also just like very important friendship and it's not like like what guy ditched us today or what guy are we gonna go hang out with tonight it was yeah. it's great it's not fraught at all and to the point what, what i really like and i think this is very much a mike lee trait and the reason why the movie is is really good at this is that you can tell that poppy confides in zoe but you don't see those scenes so she'll be getting ready for her next driver's appointment or driving appointment and Zoe will say something like, I don't know, man, are you sure you want to go out with this guy again and like in this car? So, you know, she's told her yeah. what he's like and, you know, she's confided in her. But we don't have to see that big sappy scene of like, you know, Zoe trying to talk her out of something or not, you know, not letting her trying to rein her in in any way. Yeah. It's just it's very refreshing. Yeah, that's a definitely a Mike Lee touch. I feel like he does that a lot in his films. He creates yeah. like these very cozy friendships I don't know if you ever saw Career Girls, but that 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 movie kind of reminds me of of this movie a little bit. But it's he, he has that knack for that kind of naturalism between, you know, on screen friendships. It's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. And what we also see as the movie progresses is that Poppy gets herself because of her like inherent optimism. She gets herself into some pretty scary situations. So there's this one scene that is really tense where she kind of hears this chanting and follows it while she's walking through this very industrialized part of this, you know, this city and it's very vacant and there's not, not a lot of stuff around. And it turns out there's uh, the man that is chanting um, appears to have a mental illness and she's, you know, she's asking him if he's warm enough and she's sitting down and, you know, she's chatting with him and it seems like she has no real street smarts, But then at one point he leaves to pee and she kind of looks around and asks herself, like, what am I doing? So it's just very bizarre to me that like she does have self-awareness, but she fights against the negative. Like, that's where I really started to see that this character is one that is actively pursuing happiness. She pushes against the negative, even when she's in a dangerous situation. And nothing happens in that scene, but it is a very tense scene because you're not sure what could happen and you're not sure if she knows how to defend herself or if she's even prepared to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There, that was the moment where I'm like, is she naive? Like, I don't, I, I don't know if she just feels like, Oh, I can just literally talk to anybody and do anything. But I feel like you're right. I think it's more intentional. I think that she knows that it's dangerous, but she's trying to push past it just to be a good person. Exactly. Yeah. Like she feels like a real um, duty to being a good person. It's it's just it's wild. Um, And the other thing that we see about her as the movie progresses is that she's actually a really good teacher. So there's this kid that's been bullying another other kids in the class. And she sits down with him and she's like, you know, we're friends. You can tell me things. And what comes out of that. Um, is that she ends up calling in a social worker and another teacher friend of hers, and they sit down with this kid and discover that he's being abused at home. Like his mom's boyfriend is hitting him. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, she she keyed in on that, not as like this kid is evil, you know, stop hitting other kids in class. She really saw something was wrong and didn't condemn him before she tried to help him. And so she's really good at her job because of her empathy and because of her attachment to like wanting to see the good in people. And this, as it turns out, the social worker, uh, kind of, you know, gives her his number and they, they end up going out and it ends up like, you know, they're kind of perfect for each other. Yeah. Like they're kind of great. But and this at the same time, you can also see that that being around Scott and taking these driving lessons is starting to affect her. Like she really can't when she is with him in this car, it, it, it affects her negatively to have to be around his energy and to be confronted so forcefully with a, with this part of the world that she doesn't want to think about. So he kind of brings back this naivete in her, but also does it in such a scary way. That you're again just kind of like, are you being willfully obtuse here or are you actively trying to like change him? Like, I don't I don't think you could. I think, you know, you can't change people. So what is going on here? Like the her continuance with these lessons is confounding because this is absolutely the kind of guy where you'd be like, I am never calling you again after the first lesson. Yeah. You know, there's a moment where he talks about how he like he perceives her to be this like terrible driver and he he's got such a short fuse that like literally everything pisses him off about her so he starts freaking out about like how he doesn't want to give her lessons anymore at a certain point but then he kind of reverses it and you know right after he says it and says i've actually never given up on a student or whatever right and i feel like in a moment she is probably also that too she doesn't want to give up on anyone either necessarily but then i think she figures out at some point she probably has to. Yes. And, you know, so I think it, it just comes from this instinct to want to just hang in there and see the best in people. But then there is a moment where I think she finally figures out, like, maybe you can't. Maybe this is a lost cause and you just got to get out, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it comes after a couple of pretty scary scenes. One, well, one scary scene and one interesting scene. Like, she goes, she has two sisters and one is Susie, who's there with her partying, hanging out in London, doing her thing. Then they go see their sister, Helen, who's younger than Poppy, and mm. Helen's pregnant. And Helen seems to, like, she has a house in the suburbs and the husband and the baby on the way, and she seems more serious. Um, but she also kind of feels, like, intent on making Poppy feel bad about her life. Yep. And is not happy and kind of loses her shit when Poppy tells her that she likes her life just fine. And Helen just can't believe her. And she's like, you know, why are you making me feel like I made bad choices just because you didn't make these choices? And it's like, nobody said that. You're projecting completely. Oh, completely. And I'm sorry, but like, I have experienced conversation like this a couple times in my life where, you know, I've been in the, the position where somebody who was married and has kids was projecting a lot of their own shit onto me where they were mad at me for being not like them basically and because being like them corroborates their choices obviously and when you know whomever it is like if if you're in that situation if this character's in that situation and that they they attempt to say well actually i'm totally fine that's like Mm -hmm. the worst thing that that's like the thing that they don't want to hear they're like oh my god like i I need to humiliate this person for not being like me and 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 doing the whole like baby marriage suburbs thing. Uh, 
And it kind of backfired on her. So she just gets fucking pissed. Like she just flips out on Poppy and, and the girls. And uh, that moment was like, wow, that's another moment that I didn't really remember from the first time I saw it. And then I was yeah. like, oh my God, this hits hits even harder now. <laughs> it hits hard. It hits yeah. hard. And it's also, and it's family too. So it's really strange because it's like the little sister who wants her big sister to be proud of her, but also is being kind of a bitch about like, hey, I've surpassed you in life. Isn't that weird? And you're like, it's not because her life is fine. But the real terrifying scene comes after the date that Poppy has with this social worker. And then she has to go to her driving lesson. As it turns out, long story short, Poppy is in front of the building kissing this guy goodbye when Scott drives up. And at one point before they, um, when they got back from her sister's house, they saw Scott on their street, like walking down the street. And he just starts running when he sees them. So he's been like in her neighborhood, even when they didn't have an appointment. So you're getting the feeling that he's into her. And he sees her kiss this guy. And I do not want to ruin the end of this movie. But to say all hell breaks loose is an understatement. But it, there, it, the, where the movie goes is exactly what you were talking about before, which is it goes to this place where Poppy has to realize you cannot save everyone. Yeah. Um, but what I love about this movie is something that happens right near the end. And again, this is like a Mike Lee specialty where you see her sitting down after this one horrible thing happens and you're kind of watching her actively go from sad and confused and angry back into the place where she's herself. Like you can, you can see her and I think this is probably why she was nominated for a lot of awards um, because her acting is pretty incredible in this movie where you can see it's not just a facade. It's not just someone who's naive. It's not someone who's childish. This is an adult making a decision to create the kind of world she wants to live in. Right. And it is beautiful. It's a yeah. beautiful moment. And I just, I love this movie because it is, it really explains the emotional life of a happy single person in a way that feels right to me. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. I loved this movie all over again. And, and so much more of it revealed to me this time, I think just cause I, when I saw it, when it came out, I just was in a different place and a different headspace. but like, yeah. Um, so much of these characters just really popped now. And um, it's so good. It's such a, a good movie. I mean, it's one of those movies where you look at it kind of like, you look at it and go, well, not a lot of things happen in the movie, but so much gets communicated in this way. Yes. You know what I mean? It's it's like almost a character study, and you know, in a in a film. And I just I love that it made me want to go back and watch all the Mike Lee movies over again. Yeah, um, I was obsessed with Mean Time. Do you remember Mean Time yeah. with little Tim Roth? Um, I was obsessed with that movie when I was in high school and I was like, I gotta watch Meantime. And so I, the Mike Lee films are just so, so good to me. They're a part of my, my youth and my growing up. And it, this was one of the films that, again, like I had seen like a lot of his 80s movies and really loved them. And then I saw this like later period movie and was like, oh my God, he still got it. I love it. It's so good. Yes. Oh, beautiful. I'm so glad that you liked it. And yeah, yeah I just really... I just, I do love this movie and I hadn't seen it in a long time. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's perfect for the theme. I mean, you know, obviously, like when thinking about the kind of movies that we would gravitate towards <laughs> about uh, single women, you know, we had like a, a sweet, a sweet story and a little bit of a tense one. But you know what? Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, I feel like they both sort of end in the same way. Like they're yes. like, I feel like nobody is sad. I feel like everybody is authentically themselves at the end of the day. And that's good, positive messaging for single yeah. people. Like, come on, we're, it's not a sad moment. It's, it's, you, it could be great. It ends with women who are happy on their own terms. Yes. Agreed. I am glad that you walked with me on this theme this week. I know I'd been like wanting to do it and felt passionate about it. And um, it's great. Yeah, it's fun. Have fun. Stay single. <laughs> do you want to tell them what the movies are for next week? Oh, sure. I'll do that. Yeah, so the movies for next week's episode are Itumama Tambien from 2001 and Tulane Blacktop from 1971. Yay! Here's that theme. Here's that theme. So, if you want to email us, we are at isawhatyoudidpod at gmail.com. Keep, them, keep the letters coming. We love hearing from you, listener letters. We read them on our bonus episodes, and um, please keep, keep them coming. Uh, you can also find us on our socials. We are at I Saw Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And we have merch in the Exactly Right Shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. Oh, this is lovely. Yes. Daniel, always a pleasure. Always. Until next time. See you soon. Bye. been an exactly right production produced and mixed by casey o'brien our theme song is by tom bryfogle artwork by garrett ross our executive producers are georgia hardstart karen kilgariff and daniel kramer you can follow us on instagram and twitter at i saw pod and you can email us at i saw what you did pod at gmail Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.